Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Thank you so much for spending some of your day with us. Today, we're going to talk to Tommy Gomes, and Tommy Gomes is known as the fishmonger. There are lots of fishmongers all over the United States, but Tommy is a extremely experienced specialist down in San Diego, which if you are listening to this and you are not familiar with San Diego, San Diego is arguably one of the coolest fishing ports in the entire United States. It is a working port. There's a uh, active commercial fishery in Southern California, which a lot of people don't know. And uh, there is some of the best recreational charter boats and head boats, and the opportunities in San Diego are, are unreal. So we're going to talk a lot about Tommy's decades-long experience in the fish trade. You're going to hear a lot of secrets about things that happen in fish markets. You're going to hear some tales from from the coolers and all of the real weird and unusual things that Tommy and I have eaten over the years. And you're going to get a little bit of a slice of what it's like to do that kind of business in sunny San Diego. Thanks, as always, to eFish, which is also based in Southern California, as well as Filson for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Thanks for being with us, and let's get right to the show. Tommy Gomes, welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am super happy to have you on. Uh, we've been trying to connect for a while, but you are a busy man these days. It's my pleasure. You know, it has been a while. I mean, I think the last time we actually saw each other was years ago at uh, Sea Rocket Bistro when you had one of your dinners. That's absolutely super. right. That's a decade, man. It was super cool, though. It was really cool. That was back when uh, we were just when the fresh sardine scene was happening and all of that was going on. Well, that was with Chad White, if I remember correctly. Yep. Yep. And Chad, Chad's up in uh, Spokane. Just crushing it up there right now. He is. We're actually going to do a book dinner with him at Zona Blanca in October for this book. Nice. I might even pop in on that one. That would be sweet. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason why I'm having you on this podcast is because if you don't know, among many other things, um, you are among the more preeminent kind of fish purveyors. I guess that would be probably a good way to put it. Um in that part of the country. So not only do I want to talk about from a consumer standpoint or for, cause a lot of people who listen to this show are anglers, but a lot of people who are anglers don't, you know, procure all of their fish. So they go to fish markets too. And then there's some people who just are, want to listen to this and like, well, how the hell do I get really good fish? And what is all about like that? And, but more specifically, I really want to talk about a region of the country that I feel a strong affinity to because it is very similar to where I grew up. I grew up in New Jersey, and for us, fishing was religion, but not a lot of people outside the region know it. And you're from SoCal, and it's the very same thing where people don't really fully understand, if you don't live around in the area, that Southern California is a rich fishery region, and it has its own very special character. Yeah, it really does. And one of the things that we like to point out first and foremost about the California fisheries, specifically Southern California, is our commercial fishermen are some of the most regulated in the world when it comes to uh, landings and quotas and closures and gear restrictions and so on and so forth. So our guys have to be, uh, they've got to change up. They've got to be ready to diversify and overcome and adapt to situations with closures and we have a lot of meetings and a lot of uh, 
inner battles with the NGOs, you know, and the environmentalists and things like that, that kind of paint a bleak picture when it comes to commercial fishing, which is just not true because any commercial fisherman is a conservationist. None of us want to catch the last of anything. We want this to be a lifelong generation after generation uh, way to make a living and to to feed the general public good quality seafood uh, that's not imported from faraway lands and comes frozen and with, you know, trisodium polyphosphates added to it and all that. So seafood's a very tricky, tricky game. It is. So tell me how you got started in this game. So you've been in, you've been in and around the seafood business for decades, right? Yeah, uh, that's all I know. My father was a commercial fisherman, my grandfather, my brothers, my uncles, uh, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather over in Portugal. And I was lucky enough, I worked for seven different governments on joint ventures, meaning I was the only American on whether it was a Russian factory processor or a Korean longline boat or a Japanese squid boat. I got to, uh, to see what was going on out there. And as I got older and retired from commercial fishing, I worked for a great company and Dave Rudy down at Catalina Offshore Products where mm. I was able to um, grow and build different divisions within his company and just try and educate people on the health aspects of good quality seafood. That's kind of amazing. Like I know about the foreign fisheries and I've seen video and I've heard from other anglers and fishermen and commercial guys, but I don't think I've ever met somebody who was an observer on one of those big factory boats. I mean, how yeah. is it's got to be a totally different vibe than it is on an American boat, isn't it? Yeah, I wasn't really an observer. I was there to learn their ways and to teach them some of our ways. My boots were on deck and my hands were on the wheel in the wheelhouse. Um, I was learning from them and they were learning from me. And I learned a lot about bycatch, underutilized species that were just being uh, shoveled over the side of the boat. And then I saw some things that really opened my eyes to uh, questionable fishing practices such as shark finning and uh, things like that that were going on. I mean, I don't want to get into shark fishing or shark finning because that's an entirely different conversation. But I think short version is, at least I think it ought to be banned worldwide. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. it's... It's pretty horrible. It's funny because I fish for leopard sharks and seven gills here and there in the San Francisco Bay and in Tamales area. And I'm the only guy who's legally allowed to have shark fins, right? Because I caught the rest of the shark. And yeah. I don't know a single person who wants my fins, which is really funny. Like, this, here's this thing that's a commodity and I can't give them away. I'd, I'd happy to give them to somebody who wanted them, but like, I have no use for it. I've had shark fin suit and I'm not a real fan. Yeah, it's not something that I would... Uh order at Long John Silver's, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just not, uh, it fits my palate, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, um, when it comes to seafood, we have to know our source. We have to know the country of origin or we ought to anyways. And we need to start thinking about utilization of the whole fish or eating the whole fish because all over the world, they eat the whole fish, except for here in the States. We want that four ounce piece of fish, bloodline out, skin off, no bones, and we don't want it to taste like fish. So mm -hmm. 
go buy yourself some Foster Farms chicken. You know, it's really funny because I've been preaching that forever too. And I'm actually going to have a chef from Australia on the podcast named Josh Nyland. Who's oh, yeah. Yeah. That, he, he's kind of made his living off that. That guy is an are you kidding me? He's like the mad scientist of seafood. He really is. And yeah. uh, I, I can't wait to talk to him. I mean, some of the things I'm going to have to take him a little bit to task in the sense of like, he's got sentences in his book, like when you're shopping for fish livers, really? Yeah. So like, I will tell you that I have been in, I don't know, a thousand fish markets in the US and Canada over the last, I don't know, 50 years. And I've never seen anyone sell fish livers. Have you? Just the Akimo, which is the black cod liver, but like, oh, wait, I thought Ankimona was monkfish liver. Well, they, they use either monkfish or black cod. Okay. Okay. So here's a question for you then. Yeah. I've seen that too. So whenever I catch fish, and I, I'm going to talk to Josh about this too, the livers look great, right? So they're nice and fatty and tan and they look like a good duck liver. About two thirds of them that I ever see are riddled with parasites. Well, parasites are part of the seafood chain just like there's you know pus pockets in beef and and stuff like that the other proteins that we're eating um but back to the liver back when chad and i we did gosh this must have been 12 years ago 10 12 years ago we did that um bizarre foods mm -hmm. and yep i did too i had served the swordfish spine marrow and Chad and I came up with a black cod liver sauteed in a brandy cherry jubilee served on a crostini toast. And it was amazing. So when you see Chad, you can mention that. <laughs> I will. I will. So one question I have about, you know, this is really a question for everybody who have not actually tried fish livers. How fishy are they? You know, they're not fishy per se, like an old piece of fish. They are very decadent. They are very creamy. It's certainly a texture thing for people. Um, say creamy like uni. Mm, I was just going to ask if is it like uni? Yeah, and a, or like a, like a creamy pate maybe. Um, so it definitely is a texture thing. And I know some people don't like swordfish because of the texture, or you know sea bass because of the texture. So. And that's the great thing about seafood is, you know, when you buy a piece of meat from cattle, you pretty much know what it's going to be. But, you know, with all the different species of fish out there, every one of them is different. Totally. Hey, everybody. A quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Outdoorsmen, hunters, and anglers have trusted Filson for unfailing goods since the 1897 Alaskan Gold Rush. Available in retail stores right now, Filson dry bag totes, Duffels and backpacks will keep your gear dry no matter how wet the conditions. And while you're there, be sure to check out their waterproof Skagit jacket and cap. They're built for fishing in the nastiest weather. When the sun comes out, Filson's Twin Lakes shirts, barrier neck gaiter, and angler caps will keep you cool and prevent painful sunburns. See it all at filson.com. What are some of the jewels of SoCal? Like if you're going to go to some place in Iowa or Maine or Florida and, and say, hey, man, this is what we got that's super special. You know, there's Luvar, which is a deep water pelagic species. They swim in pairs. Their main diet is jellyfish and paper nautilus and uh, those type of species that drift throughout the currents. It's absolutely decadent. And if you're on a commercial boat and you catch two of them, 
one of them ends up in the market, the other one ends up in the galley. Um, and they are absolutely delicious. But you know, there's so many different rockfish species in Southern California. And during the summer months, like now, there's beautiful bonita or bonito, which some people think is a lower grade type of tuna or mackerel, and some call it trash fish, which is the furthest thing from that species that's just an amazing quality fish. And it's like any other species. If you take care of it right away and you bleed it and you ice it and you handle it properly, then you have a good quality product. And it's totally true. I have a bunch of bonita recipes on my website and in the book. And yes. I'm I'm always like, come on, man, bleed the damn bonita and put them on ice and they'll be great. They're like, oh, they're terrible. I'm like, well, sure. You let the damn thing sit on the deck for 20 minutes before you even combunked it on the head. Yeah, it's sitting there beating itself to right. death. The and you <laughs> exactly. know, to, be, to be honest, maybe they just suck at cooking. <laughs> I mean, you don't even have to. Bonita is great as sushi. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. And then we have barracuda, you know. Um, so the Pacific are... barracuda, now you tell me if I'm wrong. So it's my impression is that the Pacific barracuda is no big deal. Go ahead and eat them. Whereas the Caribbean barracuda, uh, you have a risk of cigatura. Is that right? That's true. Yes. Pacific here off of the coast of Baja and San Diego. Um, they're delicious. I know a couple of old uh, Italian and Portuguese fishermen, they take those fillets and they debone them, take the skin off, they grind them up, and they add like uh, Italian breadcrumbs and garlic and stuff like that. And they make the most unbelievable meatballs out of that fish and they serve it with uh, fettuccine and clams. Hmm. It's, it's just insanely delicious. Oh, that's pretty cool. I usually do that with tuna trim. Yeah. And that's another thing, you know, the underutilization of tuna, everything needs to be this beautiful ruby red number one. Well, this is my analogy of the tuna. If you have 10 tuna on the table, only one can be the best. And then you have nine. And out of that nine, only one can be the best until you work your way down to the ones that are a little off color, or they might have a little uh, skin rot, or they might have starting to show age and all that. That doesn't mean that that's a bad piece of fish. It means that you need to adapt the recipe to the quality of the seafood that you're buying. What I mean by that is if you're getting a bad or a lesser grade piece of tuna, then steam it up, make a tuna salad out of it, do whatever you want with it. But everybody wants that ruby red piece of fish or piece of tuna. And then that brings in the whole uh, gas treated carbon monoxide uh, imported frozen stuff from faraway lands where if you've never seen that process, they take a tuna loin that's literally as brown as a cardboard box and they gas it and it turns it to this beautiful red and that's what sells. I'll Even, be damned. I did not know that. It doesn't taste like anything, but it will retain the color. And if you were to take that piece of fish out of the package, put it on a plate with a piece of paper towel and put that fish on top of the paper towel and plate and put it in your refrigerator, it's not going to change color or texture it can sit there for like four or five days. Nothing's going to happen to it because it wasn't flavor built anyways. The flavor was gassed out of it. Hmm. That's weird. I didn't know that. And there's so much of this uh, going on 
around the world that were being inundated by imported seafood that is not being inspected by the FDA and is also in violation of the IUU, mm-hmm. you know, illegal, unreported, unregistered uh, fishing vessels and seafood. Well, I so, want to get into that, but I still want to kind of still dwell in SoCal for a second. Where, okay. So I usually tell people that if you're talking SoCal, like especially SoCal, you're talking yellowtail, talking white sea bass, uni. I mean, those are kind of the things that are unique. Like, yes, you can get yellowtail in Mexico, but you can't get them in the Gulf. You can't get them in the Atlantic. And there are a couple other sea urchin fisheries that are good, but the SoCal one is particularly good. And white sea bass is only California. Yeah, well, we have white sea bass in the northern Baja section that comes up. Um, And of course, the sea urchin, you know, with the water temperatures rising, our kelp is dying off. Uh, here, I live literally my backyard overlooks the second largest kelp forest on the planet. And, wow. and it's devastating to see with the global warming, our kelp dying off. And with that, the urchin are dying as well, or they're not producing the uni. Uh, up more towards Santa Barbara and out to the Channel Island chains is where the really high quality uni is coming in from. And that's one of the species that we've seen the local divers start marketing themselves to the general public and are getting that four, five, six, eight dollar a pound for these beautiful sea urchin. Whereas the processors would only pay, you know, 60 cents to maybe a dollar ten a pound. Hmm. Um, and so the fishermen are now starting to realize that, okay, we can catch less and produce a better product and charge a little bit more for it because there's no middleman. I've actually been involved in that fishery. Uh, I've fished commercially out of Juneau, Alaska for salmon with a gill net uh-huh. and we pressure bleed all our fish. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the deckhand on that boat, every sockeye is $5 in my pocket, which you can't beat that for in a commercial fishing scenario. No. And see, and that's the way that we have to educate, promote, and have fun. And we have to educate those groms that are coming up the line as deckhands. And we also have to educate the consumer as best we can to ask questions, know your source and know the country of origin when it comes to seafood. Well, let's talk about that. So in my book, um, in Hook, Line and Supper, I did not want to get into the weeds of the sustainability wars and fishery stuff like that, because I just, it changes so often and it's, it's a moving target. It would have taken me like 30 pages to do it. So what I ended up with was two rules that will get you at least in the right place in a general sense. And I'd love to hear what you think of that. The rules are number one, catch it yourself. And number two, buy American. Yeah. What do you want me to tell you? I mean, I mean, mean, if there, is there anything else that a consumer needs to know to feel better about their seafood than that? I mean, really, when you can buy American seafood, you're creating a job opportunity here in the States. One thing that I would like the listeners to understand is that before an American vessel leaves the dock, that fish has already created jobs, whether it's the truck driver bringing groceries to the boat, the fuel dock, the ice house, the forklift drivers, All of this stuff has already created jobs before that first fish even hits the dock. 
And then that fish is continuing to create jobs and creating money into the economy all the way to the end user or, and I'm going to say it, the dishwasher at the restaurant. Because that fish shows up at a restaurant, they break it down, everybody has a good time in the front of the house, the back of the house, the maitre d', the hostess, whatever, whoever. And once that customer gets up to leave, that fish is still creating jobs all the way to the dishwasher. Oh, all the way to the guy picking up the trash for the restaurant. Yes, (laughs) all the way. So follow that fish has a different meaning. See, before it was follow that fish from boat to dock, and now it's follow that fish from boat to dock to plate to trash refuge um, or to a garden or to a farmer that's using that leftover carcass for fertilizer or the home gardener down the street, especially here in San Diego where we have more small farm. This will blow your mind. We have more small farms per capita in San Diego than anywhere else in the country. I kind of knew that only because I used to be a newspaper reporter covering agriculture and San Diego County always shows up in the top 10 ag counties in the state. And, you know, for those of you who are listening out there, it's the number one industry in California. People don't know that it's not Silicon Valley. It's not Hollywood. It's agriculture is the number one industry in California. And so when our top 10 counties are bigger than any counties in the United States in terms of the money raised in San Diego, you're right. It's all truck farmers and nursery people. Yeah. Yeah. And when you get out there and you join forces with farmers and fishermen and we do these dinners and we have the opportunity to educate people on knowing your food source, it's amazing. Now, look, I mean, I'm 60 years old with like 300 million miles. I mean, that's I am <laughs> old and I'm starting to feel it. But I'm the first generation of a TV dinner, the Swanson's Hungry Man. And since that time, our food has changed. You know, they say, oh, better food by science. Well, not necessarily true. I mean, the hippies of the 60s and 70s had it right, you know, be more sustainable, eat more local. Um, And our food has changed. And one of the things that has not changed is wild seafood and wild seafood is the only protein that we don't manufacture. We manufacture our chickens, our beef, our pigs of the big proteins. You know, seafood, wild seafood is the only one that we don't manufacture. Yeah, I mean, I was actually, (laughs) I was on a radio show just the other day and like, so would you say that fish is kind of the wild food that people are most familiar? I'm like, well, and it was hard to like, just not laugh in her face and be like, duh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And here in Southern California, we have, um, you know, there's fishing piers up and down the coast. Mm -hmm. All the way up here too. Yeah. And to go down there and watch these families, substance fish, catching mackerel. And I got to tell you, the greatest thing ever is to see there's an older Vietnamese gentleman who's got to be in his 90s. And his wife stands next to him with a five-gallon bucket of breadcrumbs and water mixed, and she ladles that chum over the side, and he throws out this little hoop net. And as the little anchovies and smelt and sardines come up, he pulls his little net up underneath them and gets them in the hoop net and then dumps them into a bucket. And the, I'm going to say great-granddaughters because they're probably 11 or 12. They're sitting there cleaning these, and he has 
any given day, he'll be down there with two or more five-gallon buckets of these anchovies, mackerel, sardines, and smelt filled up. And one day I was talking to um, an older teenager that was in his family, and I said, you know, I come down here a lot and I watch him fish this stuff. What does he do with it? He says, oh, he makes his own uh, fish sauce and he makes it. <laughs> We fry these up and we give them out at our cultural club and we feed, you know, a hundred people with this stuff. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. That's about sustainability right there. Yeah, it's funny. I actually have a recipe for homemade fish sauce in my cookbook because. Yes, you do. <laughs> I know. Up here in up here in California or in Northern California, we use live anchovies as bait all the time. So. Yeah. When you're done catching halibut or stripers or whatever, you know, there's always these anchovies that are kind of, they're super fresh, but they're, you know, if the boat's not going to be fishing for them the very next morning, and if they're a little old, they just throw them over the side. I'm like, hey, man, is there any chance I could keep some of these? And they're like, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Good stuff, right? You know what I do miss? And I just had it last weekend. I was a, helping a chef friend of mine out at a food festival called Heritage Fire. And some Portuguese guys from a restaurant in um, San Jose we're grilling giant sardines and oh, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely miss, I've never been able to find those big hand sized sardines up here. I only see the real little teeny ones that you use for bait and I'm having a devil of a time getting them. Yeah. They're tough. You know, there's no real commercial fishery for them. There is a live fin fish fishery for the Southern California sport fishing passenger carrying vessels. Right, right. But those are all like bait sardines. They're like, they're smaller than your hand. Yeah, they don't set on the bigger ones. The bigger ones are more offshore, you know, 60, 70, 80 miles. The smaller ones are inshore. Ah, okay. Okay. So, I mean, to that point, I think there are exceptions to this because a smelt fry is a big deal in a very large part of the country. With a few exceptions, Americans just don't eat small fish. So we don't. And that's a shame because if the big fish eats the small fish, why aren't we eating the small fish? And somebody came up with the hashtag eat bait. And I was like, don't, yeah. don't say that. Don't say that. Because people, you know, oh, I don't eat bait. You don't eat bait? That tuna you just caught did. So it must be pretty good. Or that rockfish you just ate or just caught ate a, you know, a dead sardine or a dead anchovy. And they eat them all over the world, all over the world, except for here because it goes all the way back to that four ounce piece of fish, bloodline out, skin off, no bones, yada, yada, blah, blah. What do you think the origin of that is? Because it's true with land meats as well. Like if it looks like what the animal used to look like, the only possible exception of the chicken, and even then, yeah. um, the English and the Americans have an issue with things that look like what they were when they were alive. And I'm not sure where that came from. I'm not sure either, but here in America, we're spoiled when it comes to our food, like I tell people, eat the whole rockfish. I mean, you have a beautiful pound and a half rockfish, absolutely gorgeous. And they want it filleted so they can make a fish taco. Look, everybody loves fish tacos. Super cool. Okay, good. But that fish deserves something else than a fish taco. Why don't we scale it, gut it, clip all the fins off. Let's score it. Let's season it up put it in a pizza oven, put it in a deep fryer, put it in the oven and eat the whole fish because it goes further. It tastes better. And they say, oh, I don't want to eat anything with a head on it. Well, okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a ton of patience for that. Yeah. And I just like, you know, next. <laughs> just. So what's a fish that lives in and around California that people should be eating more of? Uh, the bonita, the barracuda, and the rockfish, most definitely. Uh, all the different species of rockfish are just beautiful. And the yellowtail, the California yellowtails, a wonderful game fish. Um, the commercial fishermen are allowed only so many pounds per trip. So they're not out there just banging away at them. Which you can sometimes. Oh, you could put the wood to them if you wanted to, you know. Um, I've seen breezing schools at 50, 60 ton. Oh, my God. <laughs> and being on a purse or you're looking at it going, well, there is a market for it, but you're only allowed to bring in 1,500 pounds. That's, you know, three quarters of a ton. And you're looking at 70, 80 tons. Hmm. So the yellowtail is a beautiful fish. The rockfish are beautiful. The bonita and the barracuda, um, there, you know, there's some things that I don't agree with as far as um, harvesting and eating. I don't like seeing uh, octopus, but that's just one of those things. And I don't like. Um, wow, that makes you kind of a bad Portuguese. I know, right? <laughs> like totally bad. Um, so what is I, it about octopus? Is it because they're smart? Yeah, I mean, as I say that, as I had an octopus pizza last night. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta go to gotta go to church now. But um, and the Maury eels, I'm seeing, I'm seeing more and more eels coming into uh, fresh fish markets, and I'm just like, you know, there's more biomass of seafood out there that we can target and sustainably harvest, rather than, you know. If you're fishing a trap and the mori eel comes up, what are you going to kill it for? Let it go. You know. So I've never even heard of anybody ever eating mori eels. This is a first for me. Off the record, even though we're recording, yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, they're delicious. <laughs> they really are. Huh. So, I mean, but yeah, I mean, it's just I've never heard of a commercial market for them. I mean, if you go to farmer's markets or, you know, the big thing that's happening here in, in California now or the left coast, up and down the coast is uh, fish markets run by fishermen's market, you know, mm -hmm. where the fishermen are selling their catch right off the boat or off of the dock under tents with ice. We have a huge one down here in San Diego uh, called the dock, Tuna Harbor Dockside Market brought to you by the San Diego Fishermen's Working Group. There's down there every Saturday, they usually have on a small scale, nine or 10 vendors, as much as 15 to 18. Sometimes the boats come in and sell their catch. And we have a couple of long liners that come in every week. There's a new boat coming in. And San Diego was once the great tuna capital of the world. We were the biggest tuna fishing fleet in the world until 1985. Hmm. But these long liners come in that are family owned and operated here in San Diego. And they tie up to the dock and you can buy directly off of the boat, fresh sushi grade tuna and watch it be cut right in front of you for like $12 a pound. And, you know, they have Opa and Mong Chong, Wahoo, Swordfish. And what is Mong Chong? I don't know that fish. But Mong Chong is a uh, sickleback palm fret, and it is absolutely 
delicious. So is this, is this similar to the Pacific Pomfret? Yeah, it's a black Pomfret known as a black Pomfret down in uh, New Zealand, Australia area. Also over in Hawaii, it's known as the Mong Chong. Is this it's, the same fish that uh, you can get in Alaska sometimes? At times, yeah. But there's a couple different species and they look almost identical. The only difference is uh, the scales on one are come to a point, kind of like a pineapple. Okay. It's the same thing with the escalar fish. There's two, two or three different species, and one of them has kind of like a pineapple skin. Um, but the Mong Chong ribs are delicious. And that's are they another, very big? Yeah, they are. They're not big, but they're they're big enough to where if you cut them out, they're going to weigh three quarters of a pound to a pound. Okay, yeah. And they're about the size of a tongue depressor that a dental office would use. <laughs> And you just pull those out. They're very brutal. You just slide them right out and eat the meat in between them. And they barbecue up great. Or, I mean, I'm on this whole pizza oven kick. I throw a lot of fish in my pizza oven now and just cook it off in a metal tray. And, and it, uh, it works out great, the ribs. I love them. So for people out there who don't know anything about like what a pomfret looks like, if, if you're familiar in the Gulf, uh, A, they have pomfret there, but a pompano is much more common. It looks like a gigantic pompano. And then if you don't know what a pompano is, it's kind of sort of built like a crappie. Yeah. You know, where it's like tall and skinny. Yeah, that's a perfect, perfect description. Yeah, we would catch them occasionally in Southeast Alaska and depends on the, what the uh, currents do. And I actually have one um, a Thai fry pomfret recipe in the cookbook. Um, it's one of those black pomfrets that we caught in Southeast Alaska. Cool. You got all kinds of really cool recipes in there. You know, when you look through it, um, as a fishmonger, I could see that you put your time and effort and energy, but most of all, you put your passion into it because I've seen a lot of fish or seafood type cookbooks and they're, as somebody who eats a lot of seafood, they're just like, eh, it's just standard stuff, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've tried. Like, I've been doing this for my entire life, just like you have. And neither of us are young anymore. So, <laughs> it's been uh, it's been good so far. And it's, I, I hope it continues to sell because, you know, yeah. got to pay the mortgage. Yeah, you know, and that's another thing. You know, we need to pass this torch. You know, there's going to come a time where the torch needs to be passed. And, and we just don't have anybody... Uh, that's willing to spend the time, energy, and to exert that passion into a seafood type project. Because in today's world, we're jumping on board the latest and greatest, newest thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the train left the station and, and you're jumping off at the next one going the opposite direction because that's the coolest thing to do. We see that a lot in the restaurant industry. You know, um, oh yeah, all of the very the various crazes. Let's see, I've seen the redfish craze. I've seen oh, yeah. the king crab frit craze. I've seen the Chilean sea bass craze. I've seen the there was a swordfish craze for a while. Yep. Um, uh, let's see, the orange ruffy. Oh the yeah, orange ruffy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that's crazy when when we sit there and we target all these one species to where it just gets hammered. There's other, we can catch less and treat it better and bring in a better product and educate people across the board on the many splendid species of seafood that's out there. But, you know, we're too much of, um, 
an Instagram society, if you will, where, you know, we're putting foam on fish and we're putting edible flowers to make our farts smell better or something. (laughs) It's just, it drives me crazy because with seafood, you don't need a whole lot. And the only time that you do need a whole lot on top of your fish is when it's old. (laughs) You got to mask it. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, uh, to that end, I get the sense there's two things kind of going on in my head right now. So on the one hand, I get a sense that restaurateurs have got the memo. And so that they are, they, there's a people who are focusing on seafood in his or her restaurant. Um, I think most of them have embraced the unloved fish or at least the lesser known fish thing. So that's, that's a positive. But the problem with that is like you said, it's education. And the other piece to that is from a consumer standpoint, from someone who's going to a fish market, it's a blizzard. There's so many species. There's something on the order of 10,000 species of marketed fish in North America. Yeah. And even you don't know them all. And, nope. and, and I sure don't know them all. And we're better than most. So what do you tell somebody who's listening to this right now? And like when they walk into a fish market that has a good reputation and there's a whole bunch of things there, the problem is they're going to go to what they know. And yeah. they're like, oh, I like salmon or I like halibut or whatever. What's your advice to someone who's like, okay, Tommy, what do I do? I'm walking into my fish market and I want to be a part of the solution. What do I do? Do your own research because not everybody working behind the counter knows what's going on. I see that a lot, you know, Um, and I also see, you know, just like the name chef being thrown around, I see fishmonger thrown around and, and when I go in there to ask questions, they don't know. And they're just simple questions that anybody should know that's working behind a counter. So the consumer needs to do their own homework on seafood, educate themselves, read up and see. And not everything is what it seems to be. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors in the seafood game from MSC certification. Oh, yeah. To, oh, oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, to, <laughs> you know, um, country of origin where we have Chinese vessels that are offloading product in Mexico, Guatemala, Central and South America. And that becomes the country of origin. Mm, And we also, we also have to remember you brought up restaurants and restaurant tours are very lucky to keep a nickel for every dollar that comes in the door. Yep. And so they have to feed the masses and they have to have seafood that is reliable. Therefore, they have a type of sea, what they call sea bass. They have salmon, a salmon. They have a shrimp. They have swordfish. And those are primarily the ones that you'll see on restaurants as far as fish goes. And then, of course, you'll see oysters, mussels, and clams, which are all farmed raised. And they have to have that on their menu. And the reason why it's on the menu is because it's a reliable source. Doesn't and mean- it's recognizable to the consumer. Yeah, but they can call up and go, I need 50 pounds of sea bass at any given day, and they'll get it. Whereas if you were a local seafood restaurant, like I'm getting ready to open my market and I'm only selling American seafood. Hmm. I'm not selling any imports. So it's going to be tough. And I'm going to have to rely on my commercial fishermen here in Southern California to bring me what they got. And there might be times when I don't have anything because of weather, 
and and all that. But one of the big wholesalers across town might be sitting on 5,000 pounds of white sea bass, but it's from Mexico. That season opens two weeks before the California commercial fishermen. I'm not going to be able to buy that fish because I've given my word that I'm going to sell American harvested seafood. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. So let me stop you for a second. So I'm I'm a consumer and I walk into your market. Okay. Yeah. And so you say, do your own research. So I walk into your market and there's 10 fish that look really kind of cool, but I have no idea what they are. So my first thought is like, oh, is your suggestion to look at the name of the fish, step back from the, from the line and then Google the damn thing and like look at it in the back of your shop? Because that's the reality of shopping at a fish market is unless you're like me or you, there's going to be five or 10 or 15 items there that you haven't have the faintest idea. They might look cool. Uh, it might just look like another piece of white fish or yeah. whatever, whatever. Like, so there's got to be some, you know, the, I, I, my thought is that you just got to pick up your phone and Google it right there before you think about it, because you don't really have time to make that decision because everybody who, I mean, all of us will say, buy the nicest looking fish in the market. It shouldn't matter what species you're in. And then, but, a, they have to know what nice fish look like. And B, what if this nice, the most beautiful fish is something that is completely off the deep end right. for that person? Well, this is what I've done in the past and I'm going to continue doing is I always had this little tiny cooking section to where if somebody was like, I don't know this fish, I would literally cut a piece off of it I'm not talking about a meal size piece. I would cut a bite size piece off it. I would take it over and I'd cook it up with just lemon, butter, salt, and pepper. Here you go. Try that. And it would give them an idea of what the fish flavor profile was and the texture. And 90% of the time they would go and buy that fish. Hmm. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, which is eFish. E-Fish delivers fresh, never-frozen, wild, American-caught, day-boat seafood right to your doorstep. These guys have supplied seafood for every Michelin three-star restaurant in the country and even the Pope. And now they're shipping to you listeners. What's unique about E-Fish is that they don't have a warehouse full of fish. They simply connect you straight to the source. This means that in most cases, your product is still swimming when you placed your order. Their business operates the same way I order fish for my fishermen friends across the country. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. eFish takes an incredibly personable approach to purchasing seafood online. If you aren't sure exactly what you're looking to purchase, they are more than happy to help with recommendations and pass on their wealth of knowledge about seafood and the products they are selling. With eFish, you can always be sure that your fish is ethically sourced, never treated with chemicals, and is handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. If you want fresh seafood for your next dinner, check out eFish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get 10% off your first order with my code HuntGatherTalk. Again, and that is e-fish.com. I want to touch base on farmed fish. Mm-hmm. Good, bad, or indifferent, it ain't going anywhere. And we need to feed the masses. Now, there's good farmed fish and there's not so good farmed fish. So that is where you would read between the lines on Google to figure out 
who's got the best farmed fish or what farmed fish is going to work for you. There's a salmon company out of New Zealand, Saiku Salmon, very small. I was the first one to bring their salmon into the United States. And they had actually taken a glacier fed river, moved it, built the farm on the old river and then put it back where it was. And the water coming out of it is just as clean as it's going in. And it's some of the most sustainably raised farmed salmon on the planet. But you never hear about it because they don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars for lobbyists and to, you know, donate to NGOs and to get that MSC certification. They just don't have that kind of money, but they have one of the best products on the planet as far as farmed salmon goes. And if you have an opportunity, Hank, for yourself to go to the North American Seafood Show in Boston Mm -hmm. and spend two days on the floor walking aisle after aisle and looking at the government subsidized fishing companies from all around the world and see what's really going on, you'll open your eyes and the public's eyes to a better understanding that our American commercial fishermen are not the bad guys. We're not the bad guys. They're bad guys out there and we're not it. I think uh, back to the farmed fish thing. So my issue has always been, well, number one, I think you can put bivalves in another bucket because they're always going to be a positive to the environment. Oh, yeah. So that one, so clams, oysters, mussels, um, scallops to some extent, you can pretty much put them in a, you know, like always buy. Don't even have to think about it. Go for it. Just buy it. And then I would say American catfish would be another one where like, if it's American catfish, go ahead and buy it. I love American catfish. And I have a story about that at the Boston show. Okay. I was there talking to a guy at the American Catfishing Association of America as I'm eating his samples wide open, by the way, with a toothpick. (laughs) And I just wanted to buy 5,000 pounds. It was a small order, 5,000 pounds monthly. It's funny. Like, okay, keep in mind, everybody, that Tommy's a fishmonger. Like, he deals in large numbers. (laughs) (laughs) So I was talking to him. And as I walked away, a gentleman came up and goes, I can sell you catfish. Uh, FOB, which is freight on board, four ounce portion, bloodline out, no bones, vacuum packed and frozen for 96 cents a pound. And I said, I'm not looking for swai from the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. I'm looking for American catfish. And what had happened was swai came into this country as an Asian catfish mm-hmm. when it's not. And our American catfish farmers were just getting beat up because they didn't have the lobbyists at that time in Washington to have that name catfish removed from the Asian catfish or swai marketing. Or bassa is the other one, right? Bassa, same thing. And is it the same fish? No, it's different, but... Okay, they're both Southeast Asian catfish, right? Yeah, they're raised in different regions. And so, I mean, if you... I mean, I don't know. uh, If you think about the Mekong Delta and you think about that little conflict we had in the 60s and 70s over there, I mean, I don't want to eat anything out of that place. Um, I'm not out of that river. It's certainly not clean. Um, So our American catfish farmers, they took a beating 
just like our commercial fishermen, because we, and I mean on all all sides, we don't have lobbyists, and we're not we're not talking to the Secretary of of Interior and things like that, because commercial fishermen are and catfish salmon farmers, oyster farmers, and all that. They're independently owned and operated. They just want to work. And be honest with you, uh, most commercial fishermen don't like people. <laughs> That's why they're <laughs> out themselves. It's like chefs. We're back of the house. Yeah. Yeah. But you get it. You, under- you understand what I'm yeah. saying. And I'm sure some of the listeners that know um, commercial fishermen are totally shaking their head going, oh, yeah. <laughs> So, okay. So we got bivalves, we got American catfish. Are there any other like no brainer farm things that a consumer would be like, okay, cool. Um, the feed is very important. Right. But I mean, I'm Joe six pack at a fish market and it says farmed X. Is there anything other than what we've just talked about that you don't even have to think about feed or region or the company or whatever, or is that it? Is everything else you got to know what the feed is or what the company is or blah, blah, blah. No, you're absolutely right. So put it in a nutshell. You read the label of what you feed your dog and cat, but you don't read the label of what we're putting in our own body. Okay. And to follow that up with, let's say you were lucky enough to have a super high-end sports car that required high-octane fuel. And if you put the lower-octane fuel in, your car runs really bad. Well, stop putting low octane food in your body because your body's not going to run right. So when you go in to buy beef, chicken, or pork, you don't even think about the country of origin. I mean, I don't think anybody does unless you're buying, you know, a rack of lamb from Australia or, you know, specific cuts of meat. But the average Joe goes in, they buy a steak, they buy a chicken. They're thinking automatically that it's USA. Mm -hmm. When it comes to fish, we need to know the country of origin and you need to ask yourself, okay, was it previously frozen? It should state so on the tag previously <laughs> frozen. And yeah, that's, it, I mean, I always, that's how I always talk to people like, well, what if I live in like a small town in Iowa? What do I do? Like I say, ignore your fish market at all because first of all, you're not going to have one. Second of all, don't go to the counter, go right to the freezer section because everything in that place is going to be previously frozen. Yeah. And now there's companies out there that are docked to plate, you know, they'll ship drop ship to you. All yeah. Over. We did a whole podcast about it. Yeah. And so with seafood, you want to, you know, if it, let's say it came from Sri Lanka, fresh Brazino or something. And you go, okay, so it was harvested in a farm there probably sat in a box for a day, got on a plane, landed somewhere else, was retransferred. So it's three days in the air, then lands in LA, then gets distributed from LA to a distributor hub. And that hub breaks it down, puts it in boxes and ships it or delivers it to the customer. And then it sits at that store and then the counter people there take it out of the box and then they display it. So you get six, seven days already out of the water. Yep. So your shelf life is already the minute that day. <laughs> out of the water. Yeah. It's deteriorating. So ask questions that look, man, if your seafood has more frequent flyer miles than your American express credit card, you got a problem. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, um, so no, I want to switch gears for a second. 
Go ahead. So you are a SoCal guy. Yeah. And you're going to know better than I would because I get asked a lot from people from the rest of the country and from Canada. I would love to go to Southern California on a fishing vacation. What would you suggest for someone from another part of the country? Like, what's the best way to go about doing that to really experience SoCal fishing at its finest? San Diego has the largest sport fishing fleet in the world. These are floating hotels, high-end chefs on the boats with these giant aquariums on them that carry live bait. And you can literally step on one of these boats from a half-day fishing charter to a 16-day charter down in New Mexico with absolutely nothing but a duffel bag of clothes and rent everything you need on board the boat. So you can do that. You can kayak up and down the coastal area, uh, launch from La Jolla, Mission Bay, San Diego Bay. You can see sea turtles in the South Bay of San Diego. You can see leopard sharks in La Jolla Cove. You can hire some of the smaller charter vessels to go deep into the South Bay of San Diego and fish back there to the local kelp beds. Um, Now would be the time we just saw the 30-year cycle of giant bluefin come through Southern California. They're all the way up into Oregon and Washington now because of the warm water. But guys were catching on one day, less than 20 miles from San Diego, Point Loma, uh, 250, 300-pound bluefin tuna. It was crazy. It looked like at night, my backyard looked like a city. There were so many boats out there. (laughs) It's like the canyons off the coast of New Jersey. Yeah, fishing squid and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I would second all that. Um, I would argue that why would you want to go on a fishing trip that lasts 16 days? Because what are you going to do with all those fish? But um, there are great charter captains from Morrow Bay all the way to the Mexican border. Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, do your research out there. Um, I think every single one of those trips is going to be really interesting if you go at the right time. And you also give yourself a couple, two, three days to fish because it is fishing. It is not, it's not grocery shopping. And there's there's also really good non, non fishing things for not only you, but for people in your family that may not want to fish. So all of those regions have external things to do. Yeah. Um, Well, well, either you're on the boat or, or when you get off the boat. Yeah. You know, there's guys that go fishing and there's guys that go catching. There's a difference. Um, For the novice that wants to get into it, just go fishing. And Mm fishing is not all about catching. That's just the bonus. But it's about, you know, the camaraderie on board the vessel. It's about peace and serenity and going out there and releasing the pressure of everyday lives on a recreational aspect, you know, fishing. Releasing all that pressure. Leave your cell phone at home. Disconnect and go out there and just get back in tune with yourself. Totally. And then, you know, the one piece of that, because, you know, you do want to succeed in what you set out to do. If you are super new and you are want to just like see what it's all about, go rock fishing. Oh, yeah. I see. I don't even for the past 20 years, every Sunday, I've been fishing the back bay of San Diego. And this year with the big blue fin and the yellow tail and everything, my buddies were like, come on, Tommy, let's go and everything. I'm like, no, I'm good. I already did all that. I go fishing. I want to watch the sunrise. I want to fish with my buddy that I've been fishing with for 20 years. 
We don't, some days we don't even talk to each other. We're just out there kicking it, enjoying it, catching a few fish, having fun, relaxing and decompressing from everyday, uh, everyday life. <laughs> That's really funny that you say that. I will often be fishing with a buddy and I'll come back and Holly or someone would be like, so what'd you guys, you know, how's this? And how's that person? Da, 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 da. And like, I don't know. I didn't ask him. Yeah. <laughs> You're just fishing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. I didn't, we went fishing. <laughs> my, my buddy fishes the bow of my boat. I got the stern and <laughs> my dog comes with me. And the only one that talks is the dog. He's always barking. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about this fishmonger show. So the fishmonger show came along with my friend, Scott Laysaf. He and Our I mutual friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he and I did consumer shows together for well over a decade and we'd always talked about it and Scott pitched it to the network. And before that we had done, I got 15 commercial fishermen together and we did a round table discussion. And as you can imagine, it was pretty heated because I made sure not everybody likes each other. Perfect. But, you know, so it got a little heated and Scott sent that in and they were like, this is great. We want to do this. And Scott called me and said, they bought the show. Are you ready to go? And I was like, uh, I guess so. <laughs> so it's outdoor channel, right? Yeah. The outdoor channel. We're on the outdoor channel, world fishing network, sportsman's channel. We just got picked up by on demand mm. and I'm flying out next Monday, the 23rd. I'm going to Sitka, Alaska to film up there. I filmed at Monterey, Morro Bay, Fort Bragg last month and a couple other places. And so we'll be moving up and down the coast and then we'll be doing uh, Canada and the East Coast. We are going to Rhode Island. Got to do the Gulf. We're doing Boston and then we're, I got some buddies down in South Carolina. So I got friends that are fishing all over the country. I got friends that fish all over the world. I know some Gulf guys I could put you up with too. Yeah. Let us know. We'd be more than happy to meet up with them. Um, it's funny. We're going to pass like ships in the night. Um, I will be uh, in Anchorage on the 23rd. Oh, nice. Yeah. Matter of fact, my fishing partner, uh, Jim, will be in Anchorage on the 23rd. He's going fishing. Tell him to come to my uh, book event that night. It's at a brewery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> After he finishes cleaning fish. But the, the whole TV show, I mean, it's, it's new to me. I was lucky enough that we filmed the first season in San Diego. So I had a lot, a lot of support, a massive amount of support uh, down here. And the ratings came out. We did extremely well on the ratings. So we got season two out of it. Awesome. So we're moving forward with that and um, nothing scripted. It's the real deal. Just a couple of guys talking or a couple people talking, whether it's me talking to a fisherman or a fisherwoman, once they realize that, um, yeah, I'm not just a TV host type personality. I actually know what I'm talking about because I got boots on deck. Um, Extra they, toughs, to be honest. What's that? Extra toughs, to be sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, they lighten up and realize, oh, yeah, this is a show to help the American fishermen get word out to the consumers of what we're up against to get the best quality seafood to you and yours. You know, you ought to go to the Great Lakes too, because there are commercial fisheries there and that very, very few people know that they exist. Yeah. Scott's got that lined up too. 
that's a cool, that's a, that's a great mission really, because it's, this is the thing. It's like, you know, I can say buy American until I'm blue in the face, but until people put a face with the product, they're just going to go, oh, well, gold yeah. shrimp is $20 a pound and the Southeast Asian shrimp is $9 a pound. Yeah. And that's, that's what I do on the TV show. I put a face to the product and, you know, it's funny you bring up the Great Lakes. Uh, one of the oldest fish markets here in San Diego, Point Loma Seafoods, John and Terry down there, they had one day on social media came across my feed that they had Lake Erie yellow perch deep fried head on. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I ran down there at, right when they opened and I'm like, I'll take three orders of the Lake Erie perch. And the kid behind the counter kind of looked at me and Terry saw me and he comes over and he goes, how's it going, Tommy? I go, dude, you really got yellow perch? He goes, yeah, I want three orders. And I went outside and I took pictures of it and put it on social media. Terry called me later that day. He goes, I don't know what you did, man, but everybody's coming in here wanting to buy these things. They're just so delicious. And we don't see that out here in, on the West Coast, just like I'm sure they don't see whole fried anchovies. I know. Although what's fairly funny is that, I mean, one of the whole points of Hook, Line, and Supper is that functionally, there isn't a lot of difference between a yellow perch and a rockfish. No. But, you know, it's the glam factor. They're both very firm, very white, very lean fish that are delicious. Yeah. But it it's is. like, I mean, I'll put it this way. I've flown to the Cleveland area just to fish for yellow perch. They're delicious. They are. And uh, the thing about American seafood is the more beer you drink with them, the better it tastes. (laughs) (laughs) And San Diego, there's your other thing. Like we're trying to like, by the way, the San Diego Tourism Bureau is not paying us for this. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no. But the other thing about San Diego fishing is that they have some of the best craft breweries in the entire planet. Yeah. From what I hear, see, I don't drink, so... Oh, did you drink your allotted fill of beers uh, at an earlier age? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I mean, come on now. I go by the Yogi Berra because remember the Yogi Berra had that great saying, you know, when he was still playing ball, we're like, oh man, don't hit all your home runs in spring training because you only get so many in a season. Yeah, right. That's a don't, good- don't drink all your beers when you're young and dumb because I have a friend, a guy named Jim, he's from Western Kansas and, and he quit drinking too and because he drank all kinds of really terrible beer when he was in his twenties. Yeah. And and he's so mad because craft beer came out after he quit drinking. And he's like, yep. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. I've never had I've never had a craft beer. And my daughter is very high end wrapped up in the craft beer industry and she has her own bar and live music and all that. And I'll go hang out in there and I'll order a soda water. And the new bartender will be like, oh, you must be Delaney's dad. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> one, I'm the oldest guy in there. And two, I'm not drinking. <laughs> nice. Well, before I let you go, let everybody know, where can they find you on this series of tubes we call the internet? Uh, you know, I'm on social media, Facebook. It's either Tommy Gomes or there's another page, Tommy the Fishmonger. My market is Tunaville Grocers and Market. And you can follow me on Facebook there. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Tommy the Fishmonger on Instagram. Watch for live videos every Friday and Saturday down at the docks with vessels offloading. There's always tidbits of educational information in there as well. Um, But other than that, I mean, I'm just some dude trying to make a difference and 
and help others get a better understanding of fresh local seafood. Well, I don't think I can top that. So <laughs> that's pretty awesome, man. I will put all of that stuff in the show notes. And thanks for being on the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. Right. We got to do this more often. Yeah. Like I might have you back into talk different, like very specific stuff. Like we're only going to talk squid or something like that. Oh, I love squid. You know what? <laughs> Let me just add. So you, okay. All right. Real quick. All right. So California's got a massive squid biomass. We harvest it. We freeze it. We ship it to China. They process it and they bring it back. Why? That's dumb. Why? I know, right? The second one is, are we getting the same species that we send over there? Most of the time, no. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So everybody wants the rings, right? No, the tentacles are the best part. Okay. Hold that thought. Everybody wants the rings and the tubes. Nobody wants the tentacles. So guess what they have an excess surplus of? Well, the tentacles. Yeah. And so why are we eating baby octopus? Uh, Because they're better. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to argue with you. Because because yes, they are. That's like, you know, what's a better hot dog? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Depends on what you put on it, I guess. So I have worked on a squid boat before many moons ago in Long Island. And um, I got spoiled for calamari for, I don't know, for years because there is nothing like fresh, fresh squid. No, nothing. Squid is one of those deals. It's bizarre where you cook it for 30 seconds or three hours. Yeah. And if it's fresh, it melts in your mouth. It's clean. It just tastes clean. And so like a really light, like a, almost like a tempura batter. Like yeah. I hate, I hate the heavy batters on calamari. And although yeah. one last thing before I let you go that, so I'm in a, I'm in a restaurant in Anniston, Alabama. Uh-huh. And they had calamari appetizer as many restaurants do. And so I'm like, why not? Why not? Like how bad could it be? And, and it wasn't bad, but the waitress comes by, you know, when, after I order it, she like leans down and gets my ears. She says, hi, man. You know that that's squid. Yeah. <laughs> like indeed. Yeah, indeed it is. <laughs> yeah. For the record, if you guys don't uh, listening out there, don't know, Aniston is nowhere near Mobile Bay. So like, it's not squid country. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. All right. Well, take it easy, Tommy. Um, I will uh, talk to you soon. And we need to wet a line at some point, you know? Yeah. Well, I got a nice little skiff and I got access to other boats. And, you know, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to sit there and do podcast with you and hopefully get the word out and let people know what's really going on. And I want to do this again, man. Let me know when I can get me in, fit me in, do whatever you want with me. I'm yours. Sweet. Will do. Good point. (laughs) I know. Take it easy, man. All right, brother. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that is our show for the week. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Thank you so much for spending some of your day with us. I appreciate you listening to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. This has been sponsored by Filson and eFish. So if you like super fresh fish delivered right to your door or really amazing gear to wear while you are fishing, those two sponsors are legit. I use their products uh, even without their sponsorship. So please follow me on social media. I am at Hunt Gather Cook on Instagram. I also run a 
private Facebook group called Hunt, Gather, Cook. You have to answer questions to get in, but just tell them that you listen to me on the podcast and we will let you into the group. It is a very cool forum for getting better at dealing with all varieties of wild foods, whether it's fish, game, wild plants, or mushrooms. And as always, the core of what I do is my website, and that website is Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. You can get to it by HuntGatherCook.com, and that has literally thousands of recipes for all things wild, ranging from game to fish to edible plants, you name it. So you can find me there, and thanks for listening. I will talk to you in a couple weeks. I'm Hank Shaw. Be well. Good luck out there. And take it easy.